This week on the show, we have GPU pass-through on Beehive, a confusion with used free disk space on ZFS, which we're going to remove. Uh, there's OmniOS Community Edition, a new release, been out. Uh, PFSense 2.4.4 release patch 3 is out, as well as NetBSD's 8.1 RC1. Uh, FreeNAS as your server OS is a consideration, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 301, GPU Pass-Through, recorded on the 5th of June 2019. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Treuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to our new episode format here. We are trying audio only this time. Oh, of course, if you're watching us live on Wednesdays, you can still see us, but the final version will still uh, will, will be audio only. Right. Well, there, there will be a video file for you to download, but it'll just be um, a visualization. Talking heads. <laughs> Something to look at if you happen to be staring at it. But the show will be the same as always, starting with headlines. And we have uh, exciting news from the GPU pass-through uh, reported working on Beehive. Yeah, so this is a tweet that came out just before BSD can, I think. Uh, and it wasn't until one night in the Hacker Lounge where I actually made the connection about who this person was. Uh, turns out this is, this is the Gelato King, is it not? Oh, it was the Gelato King even? Oh my god. Oh, that's awesome. Yes. So for those that didn't see, um, Michael Yuji uh, tweeted about getting GPU pass-through working in kind of a, a roundabout way uh, with Beehive. So basically, as long as the guest is another Unix, uh, in this case, he was using uh, Linux, and he's going to try uh, Steam OS, the gaming version of Linux. Um, you can basically, because you have xorder.conf and you can tell it which GPU to use, uh, if you pass through the GPU and tell X specifically, you know, take the GPU at this uh, PCIe address, uh, then apparently it just works. Ooh, okay. Out of the box, no tuning? In order for this to work, first you would need to have um, multiple GPUs in your system. Likely, you could use the built-in one and the PCIe one, although it depends because some motherboards will automatically disable the built-in GPU if you have a discrete one, uh, which can make it harder to do this kind of pass-through thing. Uh, but if you have one GPU for your system to use and then uh, a GPU that you can do pass-through on, because uh, part of pass-through requires that um, you dis hide the device from the host OS, so you want the FreeBSD that's running on the host not to attach to the video card and try to use it so that you can then have Beehive open it and pass it through into the guest. Uh, so once you do that, apparently, if you configure XORG correctly, then you can have uh, the GPU uh, start being written to by X in the guest. I see, yep. I think I might have a machine downstairs that could do this. But I think it has the problem where the a motherboard automatically disables the built-in GPU if you have a discrete one. Yes. But I might try it on one of our server machines uh, where we have a GPU for video transcoding because they have the IPMI uh, graphics card and that's what the OS boots with. And then it knows that the GPU is for GPU things, uh, for video things, not for the OS. 
Uh, and so we already have it tricked into not doing anything with it. Isn't that your last reason that you're still using Windows for the recording stuff? Um, yeah, although the recording stuff and the gaming stuff is not... I don't know. But uh, yes, I did make the promise that I would not upgrade this computer to a newer version of Windows. I would run FreeBSD. So yes, maybe this will get me there. The last missing bits. Wow, uh, that's exciting. Mm-hmm. And I guess a lot of people after watching this podcast or the announcement will try it out on their own and report back to us. Uh, yes, well, Michael claimed he was going to do a, uh, a post or something about it that would give us more detail and maybe, you know, exactly what to do. Um, and so I have to, you know, stalk his Twitter profile and see if he's done that yet. <laughs> and if not, encourage him to hurry up and do so. Yes, and I guess he has a lot more followers after this episode. <laughs> Just guessing. The The blog that we have linked here called The Pass-Through Post is uh, a website mostly about Zen and KVM, or sorry, KVM and a little bit of Zen, but they say they're covering Beehive because this is a very big development. Uh, and, it, you know, this is... Uh, they say, as soon as development surrounding VGA pass-through matures on Beehive, uh, it will become a very attractive alternative to the more common tools like Hyper-V or QMU because it makes uh, many powerful features available in the host system as well, like jails, boot environments, the BSD networking stack, tighter ZFS integration, etc. Oh, wow. That's exciting news from the Beehive front. Mm-hmm. So yeah, congrats to the people who uh, brought it that far. I guess there's a bit more work to do. Uh, especially for specific uh, GPUs. But at least there is some progress or working things. So we're looking into that space even closer. Speaking of ZFS, we have a nice post here from uh, Maria Siborski about the confusion uh, between used and free disk space in ZFS. Ah, yes, that uh, thing that uh, ZFS brought us. Yes. Because <laughs> I even saw, I think, John Baldwin being slightly confused by this on IRC last week. Um, goes on, I use ZFS extensively. ZFS is my favorite file system. I write articles and give lectures about it. I work with it every day. In a traditional uh, file system, you use the DF command for disk-free uh, to determine how much free space there is on a partition. And you can use the du command to go count up all the files in a directory and see how much is being used. But it's different on ZFS, and this is the most confusing thing ever. <laughs> I always forget which tools report what disk space usage. Every time somebody asks me, I have to go Google it. Uh, for this reason, I decided to document it here for myself and for you, uh, because I can't remember it, and at least uh, this way I won't have to go Google for it. I had the same problem, but then I read a certain book, and then I memorized what the commands are. Uh, maybe you'll benefit from this blog post as well. So the interesting thing is that du, uh, no, sorry, df, disk-free, isn't exactly wrong about ZFS. It's just confusing. Um, in particular, because uh, of the way ZFS works, the partition doesn't have a size in the same way that it does with the traditional file system. With a traditional file system, you know, you partition the disk, and that was the size of that file system, and it would never change. Maybe it could grow, um, but it wouldn't change, really. But because of the way ZFS works, where you can have many file systems that are actually all sharing the same pool of free space, it means you write to file system A, and the free space available for file system B also goes down. Yep, and that confuses people, and... Uh 
df output doesn't make more sense. Yeah, that's why ZFS has its own command to give you the uh, disk space available in the pool. Right. So um, the other thing that what DU does basically, or what ZFS does to make a DU kind of work, is it actually shrinks uh, or reports that the disk got smaller uh, as the free space gets used up. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Marius first created a test pool uh, by creating three one gigabyte test files test disks and creating a RAID Z1 of those three one gigabyte disks. And so when you run zpool list, uh, you see the total size of the pool, which is 2.75 gigabytes with less than a megabyte allocated, leaving 2.75 gigabytes free. Um, so then he goes, does this mean that we can store 2.75 gigabytes of data on the pool? Unfortunately not. Zpool uh, in the free column reports us the number of free bytes in the whole pool. Um, this means that it doesn't count the data redundancy uh, yet. So uh, every time we write data to the disk, the parity data will also be written and will take up space. So when you write a gigabyte of data, it's going to take more than a gigabyte of space because you also have to write the redundancy for that data. Now, the reason ZFS does it this way is the parity in ZFS is dynamic meaning that it depends how big the chunks of the file you write are, how much parity it's going to use. And so if you write a lot of small blocks, the parity actually takes up more space relative to the blocks, right? Uh, whereas if you write a bigger block, it takes the same amount of parity as a smaller block, but you're storing more data. So the efficiency is higher. There's, yeah, the bigger relation there. Yeah, but ZFS doesn't know which size blocks you're going to write yet. So it has to basically figure that out as it goes. So zpool shows the actual space that hasn't been allocated yet. And you have to remember that, oh, it's a RAID Z1. For every uh, so many blocks we write, we're going to have to block write parity as well. So yeah, zpool shows the total bytes of storage available in the pool. And this doesn't reflect the amount of data actually stored in the pool. Then you have to compare that to the ZFS list command. Uh, so now when we look at ZFS list for that same pool, we see that, oh, there's 261 kilobytes used, whereas zpool said there was 431 kilobytes. But the available space is only 1.71 gigabytes because that's how much you can actually write to that pool. Because if you think about it, uh, you have three one gigabyte disks, which when you factor a gigabyte into not hard drive manufacturer gigabytes and so on, and factor in ZFS uh, was 2.75. But, you know, one of those three gigabytes is just going to be for parity because RAID Z1. So, yes, what you're actually left with is 1.71 usable gigabytes. Yeah, that's the price you pay for redundancy. But if one disk dies, you still have the data back. This can be confusing in the case of a mirror because with a mirror, uh, you don't necessarily have that, right? So if you mirror two or three disks together, um, when you run zpool list, uh, you see a size of one gigabyte or 960 megabytes in this example, and that's how much is free. And then when you use ZFS list, you would see about the same thing uh, because with mirrors, the redundancy is whole copies and so it's less confusing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so now if we start writing some data into our system here, we can see that uh, 
we have home is using two gigabytes of data, one gigabyte for the user death and one gigabyte for the user Ashogbo, which is Marius. Uh, the available space uh, is how much data we could actually write to these data sets. So right now in Marius's live pool, there are 49.3 gigabytes of data uh, that's available. And that's after all the raid Z and all that other stuff. Uh, what can be really confusing is if you were to write a gigabyte of data to the disk, uh, but that data compresses. Um, so it actually took less than a gigabyte of your free space. So your, your used went up by a gigabyte, but your available did not go down by a gigabyte. It only went down by, say, 750 megabytes or something because of some compression. And the other thing is, if you use really large blocks, the savings from having to do the padding for RAID Z uh, and just from having that much less metadata uh, can actually result in a savings as well. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, switching to one megabyte blocks on a big pool of mine, like 500 terabytes or something, uh, ends up saving about 6%, uh, which, you know, over hundreds and hundreds of, of terabytes was, you know, a whole extra hard drive of free space. <laughs> yeah, it all adds up. Uh, and then you have the slightly confusing refer column. This is how much data is actually um, referred to by this data set. And so you can get really interesting things, like if you have a clone. In Marius's example here, he has a clone called My Tests, which has used 1.19 gigabytes of space, but is referring to 12.2 gigabytes of space. Uh, basically, the other 11 gigabytes of space are accounted for by the parent of the clone. So only the 1.19 uh, gigs of new data that are written to this data set are charged to that data set. And the original space that's shared between the two is charged to the original person that wrote it. Anyway, if you want to know more about it, uh, you should uh, read the rest of this article. It really gets into it and even covers uh, more in-depth stuff. Uh, also, I would recommend uh, Matt Ahrens gave a talk about how snapshots work. Uh, and he also covered some of the interesting math and so on of what it's like when you're um, trying to figure out where all your space went because of snapshots. Oh yes, at BSD can. That was a popular one and very detailed. Yes, we should get the video for that up pretty soon. Yeah, so then in the future you never have to ask, where did the disk space go? Because now you know. Time for the news roundup this week. Uh, we have OmniOS Community Edition, a new release. And, well, first, I don't want to describe their newsletters. Um, here we go. The uh, OmniOS uh, Community Edition Association is proud to announce the general availability of OmniOS. And uh, there's a revision number there. Uh, is that? That seems like subversion, yeah. Okay. Um, OmniOS is published according to a six-month release cycle. So every six months, you get a new release. Uh, and the LTS takes over uh, from a previous um, release published from ah, in November 2018. And it, since it is an LTS release, it also takes over from an earlier revision. And so this release will be supported for three years and is the first LTS release published by the OmniOS CE Association since taking over the reins from Omni TI in 2017. So the next LTS release is scheduled for May 2021. Mark your calendars. Uh, the old stable release is now end of life, and they have a release schedule for people uh, who want to see further details. Okay, so what's new? 
uh, since R28. Uh, first, I have a little warning here. Before upgrading, make sure to review the upgrade notes and the release notes to, to uh, get some last-minute uh, changes, to actually instructions how to get the latest updates. So system features, they support uh, SMB 2.1 client protocols now that has been added. Ooh, I wonder if we can steal that in FreeBSD. <laughs> yeah, there might be some uh, overlap here or some carryover. Uh, then the console has a full frame buffer support with variable resolution. Ooh, cool. More colors and Unicode fonts. This is also visible in the bootloader. Excellent. So it's the first thing you see. I don't know if OmniOS uses the FreeBSD bootloader or if they've not switched yet. I'm guessing by the fact that it has the the color console support that Thomas Soon did, uh, maybe they are. Yeah, that could be. So something to check out. Uh, they have several 32-bit only packages have been moved to 64-bit only because it's high time. Uh, <laughs> OmniOS userland is now built with GCC version 8. Ooh, that's very new. Oh, yes. Yeah, sure. Uh, I guess uh, I haven't read anything about uh, CLang or LVM there, but um, with a bit of effort, I should think it should also be possible. But it's their default compiler. Default installation now includes NTPsec in place of NTP, and the package can still be removed if not required. And also a default set of system default parameters are now installed in slash etc slash system.d uh, underscore omniOS uh, colon system colon defaults and can be overwritten if necessary by creating additional local files under slash etc slash system.d. Yeah, see, I think uh, they were calling it system before. Yeah, the other thing happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the systemd, not the, in this case, it's system.d as in directory where you have the include files rather than the other thing. Uh, but yes, they made a bunch of changes to their networking tools. So IP admin and DL admin uh, now show IP and link information if you just invoke them without any arguments. Uh, DL admin show vnics and now show uh, which zone each of the virtual NICs is assigned to. The default behavior for rec uh, recursive chown and chgroup uh, has changed, uh, so it's now safer with respect to following symlinks. Um, if only the capital R parameter is provided, then these utilities will behave as if the capital P was also specified. Refer to the CHON and CH group uh, man pages to learn more about that. Uh, they've also enhanced their fault management daemon uh, to have better support for enumerating USB. Oh, cool. And there's a bunch of stuff in uh, zones happening. Uh -huh. So defaults for new zones have changed. So creating a new zone now initially sets brand equals LIP, li package and IP type equals exclusive. But you can create other types. They also have package source branded zones. There are sparse zones with package source pre-installed or Illumos branded zones, uh, which are run an independent Illumos distribution uh, under the OmniOS kernel, uh, subject to the constraints imposed by having that shared kernel, it can be used to run different versions uh, of OmniOS Useland, or even run different uh, Illumos distributions under uh, in the zone. Okay, that's quite interesting. Uh, there's also something about a firewall policy that can now be enforced in non-global zone by creating IPF configuration files under uh, the zone root slash etc. And rules defined there uh, cannot be viewed nor overwritten from inside the zone. So that's important to uh, protect the zone 
from people changing the rules that wouldn't help much so that's uh, ensured and additional rules can be defined within the zone so this works for all zone types apart from kvm zones it is even possible to define a global firewall policy for a beehive zone Ooh, cool uh for zfs they imported some recent changes including being able to import a pool using a temporary name so as part of the import you can rename the pool but in a way that doesn't rename it on disk before you could always do zpool import pool name new pool name to rename the pool as part of the import but this allows you to import it with a different name but temporarily which can be really useful when you're doing things like building appliances where you want the pool to have one name but uh, you need to import it on a machine that already has a pool with that name and you need to call it something else temporarily uh, and then also support for variable size denodes which is the large denode support from linux uh, there's also a bit more hardware support at the end. Uh, support for modern AMD and Intel systems, uh, new power virtualization drivers for running Omnios under Microsoft Hyper-V and Azure in the beta version. And these are delivered by the new driver slash Hyper-V slash PV package. They also have new Broadcom drivers for the Broadcom Net Extreme and improved for USB th uh, support uh, 3.1. Next up, we have the release of PFSense 2.4.4 patch level 3. Um, this basically brings the uh, microarchitectural micro data sampling uh, fixes. This was released on May 20th. Uh, and so they have that. A bunch of uh, other important fixes in here, including a privilege escalation issue where an authenticated user could have used a technique uh, similar to directory traversal to gain access to pages in the GUI where they weren't supposed to have access. Uh, and same with the dashboard or widgets could have gained access. Um, and a privilege escalation issue where an authenticated user with access to edit open VPN servers, clients, or client-specific overrides could have executed an arbitrary shell script via the OpenVPN advanced options to give themselves higher privileges. Uh, so a new set of privileges has been created to delegate access to edit the advanced options field in these pages. Existing users who are not administrators will only have access to the state of pages, but not the advanced edit permission. So if you have non-root users who need to be able to do stuff with the VPN, you'll have to add that permission. They also uh, solved some potential cross-site scripting issues across a number of different pages in the GUI. And the SSH guard daemon, which protects the GUI and SSH against brute force attacks, uh, was changed to use a single table to block offenders from reaching the GUI and SSH uh, rather than individual rules. Okay. Uh, and it rolls up all of those recent uh, FreeBSD patches, including the WPA, bug, NDP, PF, uh, MDS, and new time zone data. Okay, that should uh, uh, look uh, people's uh, lock up people's machines uh, for those vulnerabilities. Yep. Uh, they also did. Um, DNS over TLS host verification, uh, thanks to a recent version of Unbound that makes it possible on systems even without OpenSSL 1.1. Mm -hmm. And they have upgrade notes, important ones. Yes, in particular, if you're coming from a previous version of 2.4, you know, 2.4.4 uh, switches to FreeBSD 11.2 uh, and switches from PHP 5.6 to PHP 7.2. Uh, so you might see a bunch of package upgrade errors as is happening, um, but those can usually be safely ignored, but as always, you should take a backup of your firewall config prior to doing any changes to the firewall, especially an upgrade. Uh, and do not upgrade packages before upgrading PFSense. Uh, either remove all packages uh, or do not update packages before running the upgrade, and then you can update the rest of your packages. Yeah, 
So update takes uh, between 10 and 20 minutes. So monitor that upgrade process because during that time, uh, either some other firewall should take over or you're not protected during this time. But monitor that upgrade and not just run it in the background and forget about it. Okay, that looks good. And so, yeah, that you get the new PFSense stuff. But it's not only PFSense that got updates. Uh, NetBSD is also moving to 8.1 Release Candidate 1. So that is out now. You can download that from your usual netbsd.org website. And um, the new thing... So they have highlights for the 8.1 release. Uh, I think we covered those in the past. So these are not uh, the RC1, uh, but we might as well read them. Well, the MDS stuff is all new. That happened while we were at BSDCAN. Ah, yes. So, okay. Then we'll uh, cover that. So here, um, there's the list that they have for this current update, or the RC1. Uh, and x86, the mitigation for Intel SA00233 uh, MDS, uh, has been fixed. So the mitigation is in place. Uh, various local user kernel data leaks have also been fixed. And x86 also got new rc.conf settings, SMT off to disable the simultaneous hyper-threading or multi-threading. So you can do that um, on the command line or from the rc.conf as a setting. Uh, various network fixes, uh, driver improvements, uh, fixes for threat local storage and position-independent executables. So that is um, for more security in the uh, randomization space. A uh, big one there is the MFII driver, which is... Uh the LSI SAS controller. Oh, yeah. Uh, could be very important if you're wanting to try to do ZFS on NetBSD. And DRM KMS improvements, that's also for the people who want to do more graphics or desktop stuff. So that's something uh, people should try out now. And again, this is still a release candidate. Uh, if you find something that's in there, report that back before the actual release comes out. Otherwise, it will be part of the release and no one wants a buggy release. There's that. And now we have a blog post over from uh, IX Systems about uh, making FreeNAS your server OS. Um, so they said, what if you could have a server OS that had built-in RAID, NAS, and SAN functionality and could manage packages, containers, and VMs in a GUI? What if the server OS was, able, uh, was also free to download and install? And wouldn't that be kind of awesome? Wouldn't that be FreeNAS? So FreeNAS is the world's number one open source storage OS but it also comes equipped with all of the jails, plugins, VMs, and so on that you need to run additional server-level uh, services for things like email, website hosting, file block, and object storage is all built in uh, and with ZFS. Uh, FreeNAS is also 100% FreeBSD. That's the OS used by the Netflix CDN, by your PlayStation 4, and is the basis of iOS. Oh, yes. You know, you can set up a jail and get started downloading packages like Apache and Nginx uh, or Postfix for email services. If you're not familiar with FreeBSD and need to run Windows applications, FreeNAS has you covered. The FreeNAS web interface allows you to create a small partition on your storage pool, a Zfall, and install Windows into a VM. You can create uh, SMB shares from FreeNAS and map that both your work client and your Windows server, and that way they can all share the same storage. This functionality lets you use FreeNAS to share files seamlessly between your work uh, machine and your server. Mm -hmm. And the FreeNAS is also independent of the Windows environment uh, and means that you can use ZFS snapshots and things like that. Or if you prefer Linux, you can run Ubuntu or Fedora or CentOS or any other Linux distro in a VM and use SMB or NFS to expose the storage from 
the FreeBSD NAS. Yeah, so the write down there is that FreeNAS is not just a NAS, but it's a NAS plus SAN plus server plus hypervisor plus jail manager plus one heck of an OS. So that is certainly a consideration that you should do. Uh, give it a try, they write, and find out why FreeNAS is an exceptional server OS for data-centric applications. And of course, iX Systems will be happy to sell you the hardware that comes with it and is uh, properly working with that uh, FreeNAS. All right, it's Beastie Bits time, and we have a couple of items here. The first one is keep crashing daemons running on FreeBSD. So, of course, the FreeBSDs are known for their stability, and there's rarely a crashing daemon. Right, yeah, that, that would be the application's fault, not the OS's fault. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, to recover from that, this blog post is uh, providing help. So, um, uh, of course, it starts with updates. There's a script that um, got a bit more refined. Um, but at, Oh, there's also update two as well. But um, <laughs> we should start at the beginning. Um, so, amid all the chaos in the current stage of his life, the blog post owner here, uh, author, I don't know exactly what got me into that. I thought it was a good idea to perform a major upgrade of a production FreeBSD server from 11.2 to uh, 12.0. When I even did not have enough time to go through user source updating uh, thoroughly to, or consult the release notes or rather properly. Okay, so at first he did not take it seriously, uh, just rebooted the server um, uh, and prayed to the gods that it won't happen again. So there were uh, some crazy changes uh, which technically crippled his mail server. Um, that was kind of bad. But in the process, uh, thought about, you know, how could I make this better? There's, um, he's also running Clam AV, uh, Clam D to scan uh, the mails for viruses. And so there's some things uh, different in 12.0 at least, or during the uh, botched update. Or it's not completely botched, but it uh, has this side effect. So first... Um, these arcane changes in 12.0 release FreeBSD kills memory hawks such as Clam AV, Clam D daemon, and he even tried to lower the memory usage for that without much of a success. And at the end, there were not too many choices or workarounds around the corner. So, um, in uh, doing that, he found his way into writing a little script that basically would restart the daemon if it's uh, being uh, removed from memory or being, uh, yeah shot because it's uh, hogging too much memory and you can see in the blog post uh, how the script evolved how it was created and the updates uh, from people that sent uh, in updates are helpful to make the script even better yeah uh, what was really interesting here is um, watching the evolution of this thing especially because I saw a similar thing play out on IRC the other day uh, so update one was he got a suggestion from a user named Mirbox about using the service status command to determine if the service is running instead of just grepping through PSAUX and so on. Uh, so he liked that and he modified the script to do it that way. And then uh, Mirbox suggested, well, there's also uh, a tool in port called Daemon Tools that's designed to do this. But it's kind of old, but it's still very popular. Uh, and then update number three. Dan Langill mentioned that there's a Python script called PySupervisor that can do the same thing. And then someone else pointed out that, oh, there's a utility called FSC that does something similar, the FreeBSD Services Control service, which I've never heard of. And then update five, uh, Jay Cigar pointed out that there's actually a daemon command uh, built into FreeBSD, the OS, that does this. Um, and that's what some service scripts in FreeBSD already use. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, then Michael Lucas covers that in his Absolute FreeBSD book. 
but interestingly, uh, the discussion on IRC with some developers were that, oh, they needed something just slightly different. Um, <laughs> and so they actually, I think Conrad has made a patch for Damon to add an extra flag that does what he needs. But it was funny to just hear, you know, three other developers talk about, you know, how they've had to write their own, uh, at, at each different job they've ever been at, they've had to write a new, slightly different, uh, you know, service maintainer daemon. And I think it was Josh Petzl was like, you know, if you look at our RC system and you decide to rewrite it and, you know, you think system D is bloated and then you try to rewrite it and make it do everything and you're like, oh, what I've just written is is three times larger than system D and I'm not done yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah a lot of people uh made some changes and uh were chiseling away but yes for almost everyone uh for almost everyone the daemon command built into the os uh will actually do what you need and if not yes there are uh, a number of alternatives uh in the ports tree as pointed out by various people already but it's uh, very useful to have uh, to be able to like just watch somebody's thought process as they go through each of these steps um because uh, especially if you're a new user, you're going to have started at one of these steps along the way. Uh, and maybe, you know, this will save you. Uh, we'll still let you learn all of the things that, that the blog post author learned as they went through the process, but without having to spend as much time going through the process. And then, you know, that helps you get further along. Uh, but without uh, just doing it because someone said so, but actually getting to learn why you do it this way. Hmm. Yeah, it's good for newbies to see how these uh, evolve and uh, what um, from what initial version is like, and then what improvements uh, it could get. Uh, speaking of improvements, or uh, going back to the old ways, someone found their old uh, first set of BSD CDs. Uh, this is over at Reddit, and there's a FreeBSD 3.2 for CD-ROM set from Walnut Creek CD-ROM. Yes, uh, some user was cleaning out their closet and found their old ones from June 1999. Huh, a full 4.4 BSD Lite-based 32-bit operating system. When that used to actually mean something to people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was way before our time. Uh, up until like 2015, that's what the FreeBSD.org website still described FreeBSD as. It's like, but if you've never heard of BSD before, that doesn't tell you at all what FreeBSD is. <laughs> yes, it's kind of... Hmm. not descriptive. That's why we went and rewrote that description. <laughs> <laughs> to be more uh, appealing. Oh yeah, so definitely a good uh, thing to have in the historic space. Maybe these things will be worth something as old as they get. But uh, nevertheless, uh, we have also NetBSD Intel MDS uh, news. This is on the NetBSD wiki. So for people who want to get more into that security nightmare... Um, they can see what uh, NetBSD has posted about that. Yeah, so this one, there's actually more than one vulnerability that make up that MDS. Yeah. Uh, excuse me while I try to pronounce all of these ridiculous names. <laughs> the Microarchitectural Load Port Data Sampling, excuse me, or MLPDS, um, Microarchitectural Store Buffer Data Sampling, MSBDS, Microarchitectural Fill Buffer Data Sampling, MFBDS uh, and microarchitectural uncached data sampling or MD sum. That sounds more familiar. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do an MD sum. <laughs> yeah. But basically, they suggest that you need to install the new uh, microcode, um, which you can do on any of the BSDs, I think. But uh, they 
these instructions cover NetBSD. There's also ones for FreeBSD, and I imagine for OpenBSD. So you need the new micro the microcode to add the new features, but you also may want to disable hyperthreading uh, either in your BIOS or uh, on NetBSD. You can do it with the um, SMT off, or on FreeBSD, I think it's a sysctl that you put in loader.conf. Yeah, it's necessary to have that, unfortunately. And yeah, these are the descriptions how to do that. Yep, and uh, just a reminder, FreeBSD 11.3 Beta 2 is uh, currently available for testing. And I think Beta 3, if there is one, will come out uh, Thursday night, if I'm not mistaken, or Friday anyway. So, soon enough, yeah. Unless there are some uh, big changes that are discovered in that process. Um, but there's some interesting changes here, uh, including some fixes for UFS and FSCK. Um, the version of Zlib has been updated system-wide before the kernel used a separate older version, and then we had the version of the user land. We've instead moved to having one up-to-date version of Zlib that's used in both the kernel and the user land. Um, the Beehive SMBIOS tables have been made topology-aware, so it's a better description of the machine. Uh, accessor functions have been set up for the uh, VM Max CPUs so that those don't get uh, used when they shouldn't be. You can now jail a boot environment if the name of the boot environment happens to only contain numbers, whereas before it assumed those numbers were a jail ID and got confused. Oh, Ooh, okay. Yeah, that's good to have. Yeah, so if your boot environment happens to just be, say, a timestamp, it will now work as a jail. Okay, yeah, that could be a thing that people do uh, on occasion. They also uh, have an update to prevent calling the MDS uh, recalculate mitigation stuff from the wrong function, and the upstream LLVM uh, version has been fixed uh, so that it works on PowerPC64. So yeah, overall, a lot of things... Um were uh, moved over from, from head, like virtual segment count to support modern Windows guests. It was increased. Yes, uh, which will allow you to run uh, newer versions of Windows with virtual. Oh, yes, and a fix to prevent exposing the uptime via the TCP timestamps. Ah, uh, well, hmm. Okay, but again, uh, anything that you find, test those betas and report back. Otherwise, these bugs will go into the release, and no one wants that. What people want is feedback and questions, and that's what we also have in this episode, of course. Uh, again, send us anything, especially feedback to our audio-only episode or show ideas, any uh, blog post articles that you found, uh, tweets that are interesting in the BSD space. Uh, send all that to feedback at bsdnow.tv, and then we'll have more material for future episodes, especially the feedback and questions section. All right, the first one who did that was Anthony with a question. Uh, goes like the following. Hi guys, he writes, uh, just wondering, I have a pretty good test bench for ZFS on Linux for FreeBSD with a 64 terabyte ZPool uh, E3 Xeon with 64 gigs, etc. My hesitation is that I have no way to back up that 64 terabyte and I can't afford to lose the data. Yeah. Is there a documented upgrade path or what, what would be the risks of getting involved in this CT, CFT? Yeah, so it can depend on a couple things. Just testing out the ZFS bits, you could boot off a USB stick or something so you're not changing the OS that's running on it. Uh, what I would suggest is, while running the normal FreeBSD ZFS, is create a checkpoint. Oh yeah, for the pool. Because uh, once you have a checkpoint, it 
It's basically a pool-wide snapshot that can undo any changes that happen at all, including renaming or destroying datasets. And zpool upgrades and stuff like that. Yes, and it can undo zpool upgrade even, exactly. So if you create a checkpoint, boot off a USB stick or something to run the ZFS and Linux testing images, uh, you can do stuff, you can read and write and change things, and if it goes wrong, you can always go back to the checkpoint. Mm-hmm. And that will undo everything. Now, that will undo everything. So if you know, you're know you using this pool for stuff uh, and you decide you're going to have to roll back, you'll have to back up anything newer than the checkpoint, roll back to the checkpoint, and then restore those files or whatever. But if you're just testing, uh, it provides you a safe way to be able to undo anything that changes on the pool. Yeah, that's your safety net. Uh, in general, if you want to do it yourself, if you have... A modern snapshot uh, or build of FreeBSD 13, and you just build it with uh, without ZFS. Uh, so there's a source.conf flag you set without underscore ZFS equals yes, and recompile. And when you install, it won't install the ZFS commands. Then you just install the packages from the ports tree, uh, or build them to match your kernel. Uh, and the snapshots in the, the packages in the ports tree there will then uh, provide the ZFS for you. There's two. There's one that provides the userland tools and one that provides the kernel module. You'll want those to match. Um, I think we've done a little bit of work in trying to make it so that the old tools work with the new module, but probably not worth the effort. Uh, so just install both of those and then you should be good. Yeah, and thanks for helping in testing. That's always uh, appreciated because other people have different pool configurations or different data and who knows mm -hmm. what's coming up in those before it goes into the actual release. Okay, um, so that was Anthony. Next one is Guntbert about uh, or a pod podcast topic. Uh, writes, Hi guys, I recently stumbled upon BSD now. I find it quite informative. Thanks. Thank you. Um, he has one issue though. Uh, he's listening to the podcast and uh, we seem to forget that not everybody is watching the show. Okay. Uh, sometimes it sounds like we are pointing to something on screen and expecting the uh, readers to read it. Uh, sometimes we are only a very cursor will give a, only a very cursory description of apparently screen content uh, and he does listen to other podcasts with a video feed as well but till now he very rarely had that feeling of missing relevant content there uh, we'll definitely have to get better at that because we're not going to have video anymore <laughs> yeah we have to be more um, in the mindset of oh someone is just listening to this and we have to describe more what's on screen well we very importantly have links to everything in the show notes so that you can always find what we were looking at. Uh, but yes, we'll make sure not to assume that you're seeing what we're seeing since you're not now. <laughs> and that's the sort of uh, constructive feedback that we're looking for, not just, oh, this sucks, um, just um, what's the problem and um, yeah, something uh, to suggest um, to make it better. All right, uh, thanks for that. And uh, last but not least is Guillaume about uh, another suggestion for ales from Serbia. Oh. Here we go. Hi, he writes. Thanks, guys, for your show, and particularly the end section where you answer to users. This is the bit. And this often provides me useful hints on how to better use my box. Yeah, you're not the only one, I guess, so that's why we do this. Uh, it's a pity we won't be able to see your faces anymore. Yeah, well, you see us often enough at conference recordings, I guess. And the Wednesday show is still live. Yeah, and, you know, we have live stream. Yeah, if you are <laughs> missing us. <laughs> uh, so... In case you didn't know, the live stream has our DVR functionality, which allows you to pause and rewind the live stream. Uh, 
means that even once the show's over, because you missed it, because time zones, you know, we're doing this during the workday in North America, you can go to bsdnow.tv and go to the live page and the live episode will still be there for about two or three days. I'm going to write a script after the show today to try to keep it around longer uh, so that up until we start recording next week's episode, the previous week's episode will always be available on the page automatically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that should give you a good compromise to not just having uh, audio only. All right, ah, ah, here I go. So he has, uh, he's been late watching your shows. Yeah, it's difficult to keep up with the weekly one. Uh, been there, done that. So uh, that's okay. Uh, he's just finished episode 297. Uh, in this episode, concerning question two from Ales, sorry about the previous mispronunciation here, uh, about how to display an app running in a virtualized Linux on the OpenBSD host, he would suggest uh, xpra.org. Uh, I think I've bookmarked that, but I haven't gotten to uh, trying it yet. So he hasn't done uh, seen any benchmarking to test whether it is a better than X-Export or VNC or RDP, uh, but due to the architecture, it would think it is quite fast. Also, it has some advantages. It originates from free and open source, and you can connect, disconnect at will, etc. Yeah, that's a good suggestion. Maybe that problem is already solved or is already in use, uh, XPRA. And yeah, this seems like a good um, uh, alternative to the ones we suggested. Okay, yeah, thanks for that. And uh, yeah, thanks for uh, you watching this uh, audio only or, well, <laughs> listening to audio only. <laughs> listening. We have, to, we have to say listening now because nobody watches anymore. Yeah, we have, have to switch to that. <laughs> All right. Uh, so this has been the episode. Uh, thank you for watching and see you next week. As always, no, listening. Here we go again. 